if we were a movie studio and somebody sent us this script, we would probably reject it, you know, for just being unbelievable, right? Like it just doesn't, these stories do not come along. And our job as storytellers, as visual storytellers, is just not to screw it up. That's our job, to do it justice. And, uh, you know, in the end, I think we did. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverant, and this is Hodinky Radio. We've got a super special episode for you this week and one that I'm really, really excited to share. Uh, We're going to spend the entirety of this week's episode taking a deep dive into The Long Return, which is a two-part video feature that we've produced over the last two-plus years. The Long Return tells the story of two men who met at the height of the Vietnam War and the battle-damaged Tudor Submariner that kept them connected for over 50 years. It's the story of what happened to that watch, what happened to these two men, and how the watch eventually, five decades later, found its way home and started ticking again. So the two-part video feature is almost 24 minutes in total, but there's so much more than what you see in this final product. So I wanted to get the people who made The Long Return on the show to kind of give us a peek behind the scenes, and they did not disappoint one bit. We sit down with Will Holloway, who's our head of video and was the executive producer on this, Greg Corhonen, who you probably know is the producer of this show, but he was also the producer and director of photography for The Long Return. Dave O'Hara, who's one of our video producers and led the editing on this. And then we've got James Stacy, who was the on-camera host and the author and editor of this story. Whether you're a watch nerd or whether you're somebody here purely for the human interest, uh, I think there is more than enough to enjoy here. So without further ado, let's do this. Stevie, what's your intro here? I'm just saying, saying hi. What else? I, I, I want to get a feel. I want to get a feel. I want to get. I want to get. You'll a feel see in a couple seconds. Ugh. we're doing it live, man. Doing it live. All right. Hey guys, what's going on? Hey, what's going on? <laughs> hey. Hi, Stevie. We got we got a hell of a crew in this uh, Zoom call here. Uh, yeah, we do. <laughs> We do all star all star <laughs> group here. Uh, I guess we're recording. I guess what that that's what that yeah means. we're the recording. Uh, this is what happens when you get three like video professionals in front of the camera. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so we got just so everybody knows uh, who we got here. We got uh, Greg Corhonen, who uh, many of you know as the producer of the show. Uh, I'm just working my way around my uh, my little gallery view here. We've got uh, James Stacy, who is a frequent guest on this show and the host of TGN, what up? amongst other things. We've got Mr. Dave O'Hara, uh, who is a video producer and editor extraordinaire. What's up? And we've got Mr. Will Holloway, uh, who's been leading the Hodinky video efforts since what, like 2012? We don't have to put a number on it, okay. um, you know, right. for sure. Right. But uh, but hello, podcast people. Yeah, specificity uh, is the soul of narrative. <laughs> <laughs> Just not Will's narrative. Yeah, this is what happens. We've got writers and we've got video producers on the same call. This this is going to be a mess. But uh, we'll get it in post. Yeah, exactly. Gray, we'll we'll put it in the show notes. Right, the whole thing, no doubt. 
Look, uh, I always tell the guys, it, it always works in the end, okay? So no matter what you say here, it always works. Yeah, because of VFX. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, well, we're actually here to discuss what what I personally think is like a, a crowning achievement of, uh, of our video department, uh, which is The Long Return, the two-part uh, story about Barry Jones and his incredible... Tudor Samariner and how 50 years after uh, it left his wrist, it found its way back. Uh, I'm not going to tell too much of the story off the bat. I think we'll, we'll leave that to you guys. But uh, let's, let's maybe give people a quick refresher before we get into some of the nitty gritty and some of the behind the scenes stuff. So James, maybe do you want to start us off by giving us a quick summary of what happened back in the 1960s? Uh, and what led us to, to this story? Absolutely. So uh, the, a quick re-summary for people who maybe, you know, it's been a while since you, you read through the first post or saw the first video, or maybe this is your first time actually hearing about it, at which point maybe press pause and go back and watch the videos. Uh, but regardless, uh, 1968, it's August. We have two major players, the first lieutenant in the Marine Corps, Barry Jones, and the third hospital corpsman, Lori McLaughlin. And uh, we have Barry's Tudor Submariner, which is a reference 7928, for those wondering. And uh, they end up in a uh, pretty gnarly uh, battle. Uh, They weren't um, necessarily part of each other's kind of overall flow in Vietnam, but they ended up in in a large offensive. And uh, and in that process, uh, Barry was shot several times, and and one of the bullets actually uh, went through his wrist and hit the watch and essentially destroyed it or came as close as you could come to destroying a watch uh, like that. Uh, in the process, uh, Lori, Mr. McLaughlin, uh, doing what he did, got Barry off the field, and as he was taken uh, to medevac, uh, the watch was just kind of hanging off of his, you know, very much injured wrist, uh, and he left uh, the watch to Lori. The two men then didn't see each other for 50 years. The war continued in, in some metric for both of them, obviously, uh, Barry came home to the States and had to go through a lot of, uh, you know, rehabilitation. And then both men kind of moved on to prosperous post-war lives and existences and families and jobs and the rest of it. And then 50 years later, uh, it turns out that uh, uh, Lori was able to get in touch with uh, Barry's son uh, and put the wheels in motion for them to meet up. And, and part of that included him returning this badly beaten Tudor Submariner, the exact condition that it was in when uh, Barry had given it to Lori. Lori was able to give it back to Barry almost exactly 50 years later. That's a truly wild, wild story. And I I wonder, Will, you're the one who kind of found this for us and and shepherded it through production into what became The Long Return, parts parts one and two. can you tell us a little bit about like how this landed on your radar and then how we kind of connected with these two guys to, to make this story happen? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, we were very lucky and fortunate to, um, to sort of come across the story. Um, as it happened, after having the watch for a while, Barry inquired with his local jeweler in Portland, Oregon, about the possibility of restoring the watch. Um, his you know, idea was to get it back in, in working order and, and that he would give it to his son uh, at some point, you know, you know, down the line. Yeah. Um, it, the watch made its way eventually to Geneva, to, to Tudor Rolex uh, HQ, 
And um, I think it was late October of 2018, I got a call from uh, Christophe Chevalier, who um, you know became a character in this story in in, in part two. And he said, he said, hey, Will, I've got this great story. Um, perhaps you guys are interested in, in covering it. Uh, I looked at the basic details and was immediately, you know, blown away by this, by this story. He put me in touch with, with Mr. Jones. You know, Barry and I had a few conversations. I got to know him a little bit um, and uh, started to learn about Lori a little bit. Uh, so the characters kind of, you know, kind of became clear. Um, and then, you know, it sort of took some time, some back and forth. Um, you know, these two guys aren't exactly, you know, media trained TV types. These are pretty, you know, these sure. guys are living quiet, quiet lives out there. Uh, but then they agreed in uh, early 2019, uh, they were having a reunion of their platoon in St. Louis. Um, and they agreed to tell the story of, um, of the watch on camera to us. And, you know, the four of us were, were, were there to, you know, to hear that. And so that would, that became the, you know, the long return part one. Cool. And then, you know, we, we produced this video and then how did part two happen? Cause I know when we, when we set out to produce part one, there was no, there was no idea of it being part one and part two. Like we, yeah. we thought we were telling the story and then the story became more interesting than, than we originally expected. You know, after having the watch, like I said, Barry um, was looking to have it have it repaired. It was in Geneva it, for a long time. They they were kind of taking a look at it and, and trying to figure out a game plan for you know you know for doing that. At some point, you know, I was in touch with with Christoph there at, at Tudor, and and he said, you know, we're going to do it. Uh, we're we're going to try to to fix it. We don't know what's going to happen, but um, you guys can can come and film it. And, and this was sort of unprecedented access to the, to the workshop there to, you know, to film. So, you know, we went through that process um, and the watch was repaired as people have seen in, you know, in, in part two. And then it was returned earlier this year to Barry um, with Lori at his side in a place called Hood River, Oregon. Um, so the narratives there kind of converged and, um, you know, we were there to document that, that part of the story. Yeah, that's it's it's pretty incredible. I mean, I remember when, you know, I think we were just like having either a basic editorial meeting or maybe you and I were just like chatting over a coffee. And I remember you very casually mentioning that this story existed. And I was like, wait, wait, what? Like, excuse me, what's what's happening? I think as as journalists, like these are the kinds of stories that like really get us salivating. Like they're they're about watches, but like only kind of like they're really about it's about people and it's about history and it's about culture and it's about the ways in which like watches can can play a part in that and I wonder you know I'll open this up to to everybody like do you guys remember your your reactions when you first heard about this story like before we started getting involved ourselves yeah and in my mind I remember um hearing about the story long before anyone was assigned to it or just just I think will mentioning it in passing and Will maybe can correct me if he remembers the conversation, but I think I said, like, where is this coming from? Because I feel like you read anecdotal three-sentence stories like this pretty commonly, and then you can't you can't source them. You can't get everybody aligned. Like, like even, even up until, you know, even a month before we produced the, the first video, there was a chance it just wasn't going to happen. I mean, these are like Will said, kind of like private people with whole lives that don't have anything to do with the publicity of this watch. 
or or of their their history as uh, you know as as men who served in the Vietnam War. Uh, they've, you know, they have, there's, it's a multifaceted sort of thing. So I think every time you hear these or you say like, oh, well, you know, this interesting group of the military used this watch, it would be so fun. There's always there, there's always that statement. It would be so interesting. It would be so fun. It would be so special to be able to capture that. And I think I, I think I led into this with just general skepticism, which is kind of my speed with a lot of stuff. <laughs> that's a pretty, on what that's a pretty good instinct for a journalist, right? Like skepticism is a healthy thing when you're, when you're doing this, not, not a bad thing, I think. Yeah. And I think in many ways for me that the skepticism isn't even necessarily like, um, a, one of journalistic integrity or something like that. It's just more like I, I have enough understanding and, and, you know, at least, well, actually all four of you know that I have enough understanding to know when something is going to be hard, but not enough intelligence to, to actually decide to not do it, uh, <laughs> typically. Um, and uh, and I think in this case, luckily, I, we had a big team. I, I had a very small role in both parts of the film. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, I, I think what's remarkable about this is that all of the moving parts, I mean, think about these are the whole world, Tudor, Rolex, two guys that hadn't seen each other for 50 years, and us kind of on an ancillary edge of this were able to dip in as things connected in front of us. I think that's the, the, the most remarkable part of it. You know, I was thinking about it this morning. You know, if we were a movie studio and somebody sent us this script, we would probably reject it, you know, for just being unbelievable, right? Like it just doesn't, these stories do not come along, right? Yeah. This is just an, an amazing story. And our job as storytellers, as visual storytellers is just not to screw it up. Right. I mean, that's what that's our job to do it justice. And, uh, you know, in the end, I think we did. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I mean, that 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 gets us to something I wanted to ask you about, Will, is like heading into this, you you really quarterback this whole thing. And like, how how did you start to strategize and figure out how we were going to be a part of this and how we were going to tell this story without screwing it up and, and like doing it justice and without kind of like, you know, there, there are so many ways to get like the tone wrong or the feel wrong or to make somebody feel weird and then it falls apart. Like how, how did you really kind of build a game plan for how to, how to do this? You know, the first thing was, was gaining the trust of the participants. And, and that's, you know, a big thing in, in any story. Like I said, these guys weren't exactly clamoring to jump on camera and, and, and tell their story. Um, so, you know, up to the time that we went to St. Louis, you know, I was a little skeptical of, of, of whether or not this was going to work out. We got there, we had dinner with them. We had a nice dinner with them and we, you know, we kind of got to know each other a little bit. And after like half an hour or 45 minutes, I remember thinking, okay, you know, this is going to work out. These guys are comfortable with us. They, they, they understand what we're trying to do here. And I think we're in pretty good shape. Um, the one thing I would highlight about when, about meeting them and those guys, especially at that dinner is because um, I don't know that this is something that I would have appreciated until I had the ability to take part in in a project like this. Is these I've never met two guys that had less to prove. Yeah. So the in the inverse of that's a funny thing to say, and it's I think it's very true. But consider and and I would say not only for the us and Hodinki and and the favor they did all of us in allowing us to be part of this, but to everyone who watched it enjoyed it. Imagine they have so little to prove they didn't have to do this. So they're their willingness to play along with cameras and mics and stuff that like I do this for a living and I don't like having a mic clipped onto me. I don't like sitting in front of a camera and trying to remember a script or a story or whatever. <laughs> so imagine just being like a guy 
right? They they yeah. had nothing to prove, and and instead instead of coming at it from like a why would I why would I do this? Why would I tell right. this story? I don't understand. I I don't want to be part of it. It was just pure generosity. They took their time they, right. out of their schedule. They took their their effort. I mean, they traveled some distance to do the the stuff in St. Louis that we did, and that I think that's what I that what really like still sticks out for me in, in meeting them originally was I thought like maybe there'd be some bravado, some kind of like you know tough guy military sort of vibe and it was none of that they had zero to prove they answered every question you could possibly have in the most forthright and calm and gentle manner and and i think that i don't i genuinely at sometimes i was kind of i remember being at the dinner and being like i don't really know why they want to do this but i'm i'm really <laughs> glad they're, they're 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 like this that they're they're so sweet and kind with their time yeah, I mean, could you blame them for being a little bit skeptical of Not you know, even four guys showing up from New York with, you know, tons of cameras and, and, and equipment from a watch website? You know, you haven't seen your buddy in 50 years. You've just returned the watch to them and these these yahoos show up and, and want to, you know, kind of record you uh, and, and tell your story. Uh, yahoos, yahoos is a pretty good summary of the uh, group of guys we got on this call. This is uh, this is the Yahoo Brigade for well, sure. It's, it slipped out. Let's let's get that in edit. Okay, these uh, <laughs> these professionals. If if I could add to, there's there's probably a reciprocity there too. Like I mean, the real stars of of this project are, are Barry and Lori, and they're not here to speak for themselves. But I'm sure there's a little bit of measuring going on on their part too when they first meet us. You know, because we're literally a bunch of guys flying into a random city to make this project. And we only have so many hours um, within, you know, those those couple of days to, to make it happen. So every little moment we've spent with those guys, I personally was absorbing just to get a sense of who they are. And and in the long run, it, it affects the, the end product, too, of, of how you tell their story. So one thing that I remember just from meeting Barry is just, and Laureate, um, is just like the, the kind of like the glint in their eyes. You could tell there's like a, there's a lot of wisdom there. He's a grandfather. I remember him being like, like ripped. He's still <laughs> and, ripped. Uh, Imposing figure. Yeah. Right. So automatically, without him knowing, he, he's a strong figure for for to lead this project. So, yeah, that was my, my initial impressions. Yeah. Matt, can I ask a question to the group? Go for it, Gray. Yeah. So so we get our impressions of, of Barry and Lori. What are your impressions of handling this watch for the first time? Because that is as much yeah. as they were striking. We handle a lot of watches, modern and vintage. We've seen things that have been put through the ringer. Nothing with blood dried on the dial. What what what's what's everyone's reaction when you see that watch for the first time? Yeah, I mean, you know, like you say, we've handled a lot of watches, um, and this was one that was, you know, actually not working in its in its present state at that time. But in a weird sense, none of the watches that we've handled felt so alive as this one. You know, yeah. this thing was like it felt like a living, breathing object you know and it was it was a little bit surreal and like you say the the blood was sort of caked on the on the case and and part of the strap um so it it was pretty intense just the way that the the metal on the case was curved it's almost like dolly like uh i don't know what the painting is like the the persistence of memory or something with the melting clocks and and not just for the surreal aspect of it but just the way that the metal 
was was curved you, you get a sense of the impact that he took from the bullet you know and it's it's very haunting you know yeah i mean uh from my from my standpoint I, you know the the easiest way for me to explain it sounds a little bit grandiose in that like i think it's one of the most immense objects i've ever experienced mm. Like it, it's experiencing something that 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 was um, that had like transcended whatever it had originally designed to be, and it had become something I don't know more or special or significant in and of its own. But holding it almost encapsulated everything that I find interesting with watches. Mm. Like like a watch wow. is a watch is a great thing, but like ninety nine point nine repeating is just product. That, that will be worn, yeah. purchased by someone and worn until the battery dies or until it needs a repair and then it's thrown away. And the fact that this watch had a huge life, it went to war, it was a true tool watch, it was born in like the golden era of Swiss tool watches. And then to, to sit in a drawer, uh, not so much ignored or forgotten, but just not needed for 50 years. And then to come back and now be given this entirely secondary life, which we were happy to you know, thrilled even to be able to cover. But the fact that it went through these stages, I just think like it, it encapsulates everything that is watch enthusiasm, enthusiasm in a product that could be forgotten. I just wanted to, to jump in there. I, you know, I think it's easy to say 50 years and, and, you know, kind of gloss over it. That is such a long time, you know, that's, you know, uh, half a century, you know, that's two gray lifetimes right there, you it's know, two grays. Yeah. <laughs> more accomplished for sure. Um, <laughs> but the, you know, the fact that this thing was, was sitting there in this drawer, um, you know, for that long and just sort of like holding its, its story inside. And I just sort of had this sense that it was ready to kind of burst out and, 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 you know, kind of tell its story, you know, in a very real way. And I, I felt like, you know, being a part of that process is something that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud of. I mean, Stephen. Stephen has held the watch that was on the top of Everest. Yeah, and and I've sat, I've stood next to the case as many people have to one of the watches that was on the moon. Those are incredible things to stand, especially if you, like you love watches, and then to get to experience them. That's that's all next level stuff. I think that this is this is that, but like magnified. Yeah, it's so it's such a human thing now. I I totally agree with everything you guys are saying, and I I really want to hammer home something that Will touched on, which is like. The life that this watch lived initially on on Barry's wrist and when he was he was shot and the impact that this had on the watch and and kind of imbuing that moment into the like physical character of this watch is is important and is interesting and and is obviously key to this story but to me I almost find more interesting the fact that Laurie kept it for 50 years and like kept it exactly as it was and like he didn't go get it fixed up and wear it. He didn't get rid of it. He didn't sell it. He didn't whatever. It like the idea that he could keep it for 50 years as as a like totem to this connection he had with another human being. Like I can't even imagine what must have gone through his mind every time he looked at that watch or like you know what happened when he like moved you know, like, what did he do with it to take it from one location to the next? Like, to, to have such care and reverence for not just an object, but for what that object represents is such a beautiful, powerful thing when you stretch it over 50 years like that. Like, anybody can become obsessed with something and love it for six months, a year or whatever, take care of it, whatever. But, like, to do that for 50 years is a really powerful, profoundly human thing uh, that I just, like... Even just talking about it, like I get a chill. Like I find it deeply, deeply moving. 
And how many times do you suppose he, he thought about, you know, the prospect of returning it to, you know, you know, to Barry and what that process would be like and how that would, you know, sort of be a, 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 the entryway into reconnecting with, with his, with his, you know, fellow soldiers. Um, really just a, an, an amazing thing. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about some behind the scenes stuff. Uh, you know, people, I, I hope everyone listening has seen the two halves of this film. If you haven't, again, please pause this and just go watch these, these two films. They're incredible. And also all of this will make a lot more sense if you've seen the long return parts one and two, but, um, you know, can you guys give us a little taste of, of behind the scenes here? Like, what was it like setting up production for this? What was it like being there with these guys? You know, it's hours and hours and hours with these people. So can, can you give us some insight into that? So from our perspective, you know, on the, on the video squad, you know, part one was certainly the simpler story to tell. Um, and so our job was to go, you know, land in St. Louis and uh, nail an interview, nail the B-roll, you know, don't forget anything, back up everything and get home and then work on that story. You know, um, we are, our, our set there was a cramped hotel room. At, I forget <laughs> the name of the hotel, but, um, I believe it was the best Western. Okay. Maybe best Western at the airport in, in St. Louis. Um, decent Mexican food nearby. Pretty good Mexican food nearby. Yeah. Yeah. No. We ate a lot of Mexican food. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, just out of frame there from what you saw on, on film, you had a, a bed with a couch on top of it, with a desk on top of that, <laughs> with a TV somewhere in, in there. It was, it was all pretty cramped, but you know, that sort of gets into, into the process of, of storytelling like this and, and production. Um, you can plan all you want, but it's a process of troubleshooting, you know, kind of on the fly and making, and making good decisions, um, about, about that process. Um, you know, Gray as sort of our DP on the ground, I'll, I'll let you talk about the setup there and how that, and how that kind of came together. Fairly straightforward, honestly, you know, like you said, our job was to, to get there and, and not screw it up. We had really compelling characters. We had, you know, this object that ties it all together in terms of what we actually captured on the ground. Like you said, it's an interview with our subjects in suboptimal conditions, i.e., a queen double bed, uh, room at the best Western in St. Louis and then a bunch of footage of the watch itself. And here's, here's where like we got to shine some serious spotlight on Mr. Dave O'Hara because in the end, it's an interview and footage of the object itself. And that's what we went back to New York with. And that's what Dave had to start cutting with. And if you watch the long return part one, the assets captured in St. Louis are a fraction of what your experience is in that film. Everything else is Dave pulling assets together, whether it's archival images and video, whether it's his creative way of treating some uh, photo assets he had. The, the real magic comes together in the editing room. And so major props to Mr. Dave O'Hara on that one. Absolutely. Thanks, Gray. I was just about to shine the light on you, and then you turned it on me. We got, we got lights going every which direction here right now. <laughs> Well, just to touch on what Greg was saying and what, how Will alluded to him, like going back to how we shoot this, it's like, you know, I, I give Gray a lot of props for seeing how we frame these shots because we're not working with much. Like you pan the camera eight inches to the right and you'll see Will sitting there on the <laughs> queen size bed, you know. In terms of like 
how the magic is is sprinkled on that. Honestly, it 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 the spine is is Barry's storytelling. You take the most compelling things he says. Yeah, you start there, and all the archival footage stuff. Like I learned something new through that process of of just kind of combing through the internet for for historical footage um, that was genuine and that was true to that time period. So yeah, it all kind of came together. Yeah, one of the things that that is an important part, I think, of the reporting process and, and the editing process is, you know, your, your, your raw materials are somebody else's story and them telling that story, but you're then making tons of decisions about what to include, what order to put it in, how to piece it together, and how to sort of like translate it to someone you know like you said you had over an hour of interview footage and you have to then condense that into 13 minutes and somehow still try to like tell that whole hour of story or at least do that whole hour justice and and I wondered did you did you find it uh, maybe stressful is not the right word but like did you feel like a certain burden to like do this justice and like do it right and like not somehow mess up this this story in the same ways that Will Will has been talking about. I, I wouldn't call it stressful. In the process, there's there's those stressful moments, and normally it's like right in the beginning because I would liken it almost to like making a sculpture. Like here you are, here's a big piece of clay. You don't know what it is. It's it's very nebulous and formless, and and now you're trying to shape it in a way that's uh, makes sense and is beautiful, but um, for me, as long as you know, kind of the beginning, the middle and the end and where you want to, to end up, then, then you'll eventually get there. And, and, um, what's important is that the, the story itself had so much heart. And so that telling of it wasn't stressful. I would say it just mm. takes time. Um, yeah. Cause there's no embellishment here. There's no, um, trying to uh you know pull something out of thin air to make it all happen it's just the the pieces are there it's just how can you have it unfold in the most genuine way you know i mean for me it's it's you know it's pretty easy you uh you hire people who are better than you are at certain (laughs) aspects of uh of uh what you're trying to accomplish so uh you know You've got Gray on the ground uh, handling the you know the cinematography, and you've got Davy uh, back in the office uh, handling the edit. And you sit back and you kind of watch, and it all. And then you have James as honestly as the you know on-screen talent and as the voice of this thing, and uh, and you're good. You know those are the elements. So you're just like um, chilling on the queen size bed, eating some uh, fried ravioli, St. Louis yeah. style. <laughs> yeah, I think I was I was Pretty talking much. to Lori's wife for for a, a good chunk of time. Very pleasant conversation. Uh, learned all about their childhood in Iowa. Um, you know, easy for me. So, all right. So we we talked a little bit about about the behind the scenes from the production standpoint. But was was there other stuff going on? I mean, you spent a significant amount of time with these people. Like, are there other stories from shooting? Other things people didn't see? Things that didn't make the final edit that you think people would find uh, fascinating? One thing that came up a lot in, you know, comments later was, you know, wow, you know, Laurie played a big part in this story. Uh, he's really the, the, the linchpin in this whole thing. Um, and, you know, he, did, he didn't get a watch, you know, or, or, or whatnot. Uh, he did get a watch. In fact, uh, he was gifted a Tudor uh, Black Bay 58 uh, for his um, 
for his part in the story, uh, for his you know major part in the story. So that was a nice um, that was a nice move on on their part. Yeah, I got that question a lot online, and you know, Rolex being Rolex and the rest of it, and everybody's privacy, wanting to maintain that. We didn't. I wasn't sure that we could answer it necessarily, but I'm, I'm glad to say that yeah, uh, you know, basically from from the from the the moment of uh, the first film, uh, yeah, he got a uh, yeah. he got a really dope watch. Yeah, and I know that he wears it proudly uh, out there in Colorado, so it's it's a it's a nice feel good feel good thing. That's awesome. Let's make sure we get some conversation in here about part two because uh, if I remember correctly, just from like sort of the ambient conversations in the office uh production logistics for part two were infinitely more complicated right yeah uh you know indeed and i i think part of that was you know the the major part of that was the actual restoration so i think maybe we start there and then get into how filming of the return of the watch you know sort of came together but um the watch was at tudor rolex in geneva and we got word and the okay that we could be there as they as they restored it and 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 that was the crucial part of this story um that was the exciting part of this could this thing be fixed um so i you know it was an honor to to be able to be there and and to film that it was kind of a surreal experience uh james was there uh you know with me for that along with um samuel one of our um our freelance uh, video contributors who we work, we work with a lot. Um, I got locked in a hot car and learned what it's like to be a dog in a parking lot. Yeah, I'm sorry. Don't I'm leave sorry. your, don't leave, uh, don't leave your, Dave, you don't know that story in the car. <laughs> I do not know that story. <laughs> we, we were in um, France, right? Correct. So we had driven to France in Sam's Audi A1. And I was in the back seat. I was crazy uh-huh. tired. I've been doing a lot of traveling and then got the call to pop over to Geneva for uh, this. And we were doing some drone shooting, you know, kind of like the the general production work that goes before some of the other stuff. And Sam said he knew a spot that was kind of like up on a bluff. And we drove up and in the process, at, uh, as I want to do, I fell asleep. I don't know what time zone my brain was actually in. I fell, I fell asleep. And I woke up when, when they got to the top and they were like, oh, we're going to go shoot some stuff like you're good. And I was like, all right, cool. And I just kind of like rolled back over in this little hatchback and fell asleep. And then a few minutes later, uh, it was too hot. Uh, you know, it was probably, I don't know, what was it? 85 degrees, maybe something like that in, uh, in and around that area. Maybe not quite that hot. 55 to 60, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 It was a balmy 34. uh, Yeah. 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 And, and I just remember uh, being like, oh wow, it's, it's pretty spicy in here. I'm, I'm going to go catch up with them. I could see them just, you know, across the field. And I go to open the doors, nothing. I go to put down the windows, nothing. I like try and see if I can reach the back hatch. No, nah, it's not going to happen. And then I, I wait like uh, my Canadianism probably let me wait like about 20 minutes until I was like kind of pouring sweat and thinking like I'm not in any actual danger, but this is very uncomfortable. And so I started sending text messages to these two, but we were kind of in a weird, you know, reception area. So I wasn't sure that they're getting any of them. And uh, it was... That, that's, it w- that's the point where I get a text from Sarah being like, hey, do you have Sam's number? And I'm like, yeah, sure, here here it is. Like, why do you need it? 
and she responds back, James is locked in his car. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I was droning. We were getting some beautiful shots yeah. of wide shots of Geneva. I kept getting these notifications, text messages from James. I was ignoring them because you know, I was flying a drone. And uh, little did I know that he was dying in the back of the car. It was, uh, it was spicy, but they, then they showed up and it was okay. But I do now have like a, a whole new respect. Don't leave babies. Don't leave dogs in your car. Uh, you can leave James's in your car. Uh, we're powerful enough to handle the heat. but uh, And this has been yeah. a public service <laughs> announcement brought to you by Hodinky Radio. <laughs> but I, I, I hadn't thought about that since the day it happened, and it just popped into my mind while we were doing this. Uh, that, was, that was a neat trip. It was, it was a, it, uh, speak, used, to use the word again in a different, a different uh, methodology, it was a trip to go inside Rolex. I had no idea what to expect. I wasn't sure if it was kind of like entering a military base where you were going to be you know, bio imprinted, laser scan, the rest of it. Uh, but it's, you know, a beautiful building. I'm sure Will can speak to this as well, but it's this, it's this gorgeous building that we've all seen pictures of from the outside. And you go in, it's of course very quiet, but not as kind of like serious or security minded as I thought. Uh, and not unlike anyone who's ever been to Basel World. It's kind of like passing muster at the Basel World Rolex booth. Uh, it was a little bit more, you know, they were expecting us. So we didn't have to tender uh, business cards or anything like that. And, and then, yeah, we got some, we got some ID and we basically just kind of stayed near someone who knew where we were supposed to be, but a really cool building for sure. And, and a neat place to go into. We were told at one point, I'm not sure, uh, you know, how, how this works entirely, but I think we were the furthest like external camera crew. I think we were the furthest an external camera crew has ever gone into Rolex. Certainly, that building or maybe that department was the uh, the framing. My Swiss French isn't isn't what it used to be. <laughs> That's what they told us, at least. You yeah. know, who knows? You know, we were tired. You know, who, so who tired. Knows? Some of us so had been sleeping in hot cars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and and then it was you know it was the restoration, and that was obviously a special thing to you know to observe. It was so um, cool. It was it, it was pretty cool, and you know it, it wasn't in and of itself. You know, having shot watch um, watchmakers in factories since the Carter administration, apparently, um, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't so different from shooting in other places. You, you know, you go in, you have your cameras, you have your tripods, you have your lights, you look for your angles, you set it up, you, you check your batteries, your SD cards, all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, but in the back of your mind, you know, you have one shot at this, right? You can't miss something. You can't mess there. there you can't go back on this. So a little bit of, you know, apprehension there. Um, there were a few times I had to double check to make sure I hit, you know, the record button um, because I was sort of standing there staring at this thing, you know, in, just in, in, in kind of amazement. Um, and, you know, the big moment was when the guy, when the guy broke out the hammer, you know, early on in the process. And, uh, you know, here we are at probably the most renowned famed watchmaker in the world and you know you're expecting the the most cutting edge approach to this restoration and this guy brings out a hammer um <laughs> we're we're all in white robes yeah, yeah. immaculately dressed not yeah. sweaty because the air conditioning is lovely unlike the interior of a Audi A1 on the top of a French hillside <laughs> yeah. um but they lead us at that you know, we've seen the movement kind of disassembled and, and has gone through the cleaning process. Then they lead us into this other little room 
And inside this room is, is, is just one dude and he's surrounded by kind of like old school tools. But it's not like a barn. Obviously, it's not like a barn. It's not like any of the, the garages that I grew up in. It's this, this beautiful, you know, sort of like NASA grade space. But it's full of these old school tools that are sitting in, you know, in wood holders that are, are very much at like a handcraft sort of thing. And to see the two kind of like blended together, it was a, a really special thing. And then just to see this guy like grab a big ball peen hammer and be like, I'm going to smash it. <laughs> like, All right, dude. It, it, it sort of felt like, you know, you, you, you were going to the best dentist in the world oh, yeah. and for a very delicate <laughs> procedure and you're sitting there and they sort of bring hammers at you. This guy could yeah. have had your wisdom teeth out in oh, maybe five seconds yeah. for sure. And it just, at this point, you know, having, you know, worked with the guys and, and you know, having known the watch, you, you become a little bit protective of it, you know, yeah. in, in a way. <laughs> like he's really going to hit it with a, with a hammer. Um, but yeah, that's exactly what happened. Did you guys and all kind of wince the first time uh, there was metal on metal contact? James did. I, I didn't. I, I, yeah, I've never <laughs> winced once in my entire life. Oh, okay. Okay. I, I forgot, uh, James. No, no. I, I thought I was more just fascinated um, because I, that level of handcraft is, is is absolutely required to make a watch what it is. Um, even if it's simply building, you know, compute now, let's say CNC and the rest of it builds upon what people used to do with their hands. Uh, but to see it done... Um, in this scenario where everybody, not, not just us, but everybody knew they had one, one shot. Yeah. yeah. This is not, they, this is not the watch to make the hammer, you know, to hit your thumb or, or the rest of it. Like it's crazy. And, and the absolute sort of joy that the specialists, the restoration specialists had, <laughs> yeah. um, as he went about this process, I mean, he was really in a, in a good place, you know, yeah. and really enjoying the, the, the process, but you know, nobody really knew what, knew what was going to happen. You know, there were there were a few moments there where it was like, um, oh, the hands, you're going to break that hand, (laughs) like for sure. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, yeah, they they, they pulled it off. Uh, It was quite quite a special thing to see. I remember when Ben visited Rolex years and years ago that when he got back, I asked him, like, what what things surprised him the most? And he said how much they still do by hand that like you think of Rolex as this place where like, you know, they're making about a million watches a year they don't disclose that but it's it's estimated at about a million watches a year um and that they're doing it largely using cutting edge technology but then you see how much stuff is still done the old way done by hand and it sounds like that's that's exactly what the approach was here and it's it's pretty wild to think about that it really is and it was really a you know really an amazing thing to watch especially as a an important part of the story and kind of knowing what this all meant to you know, the folks back in, in, in the States to, to Barry, um, you know, and to Lori, um, and, and to know that, that you were there watching it and you knew the outcome kind of before they did, you know, felt, you know, kind of surreal. Yeah. Um, but really kind of a unique thing to, to be able to observe. And then of course, you know, the moment that the, the hand, the repaired hands went back on, everything was, you know, reassembled and you see this thing, you know, you see this thing ticking, uh, that was that was quite special. A rare narrative beat in things that we cover where the stakes are legit. You know, right. the stakes are high. This is an object that yeah. we are now emotionally invested in because we're emotionally invested in the people to whom the object belong. And here's a risky process that can have a huge payoff or a huge emotional dent. 
And one uh, guy, uh, I think one one commenter said his his butt cheeks were clenched when uh, <laughs> he was watching the hands being bent. That's so, an appropriate reaction. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's great. I mean, I I like the idea that you said like you know what's going on here before Barry and Laurie, and like I think that really does raise the stakes for you guys because it's not like you're standing there with them. It's like if something went wrong, like presumably you guys wouldn't be the ones who have to tell them, but like somebody would have to call them and be like, uh, things didn't go so hot, you know? And like that, I can't even dwell on that. Like I'm, I'm getting stressed out just thinking about that. Uh, I mean, it's, it's both lucky and a testament to the, the skill of the folks at Rolex and Tudor that they were able to, to pull this yep. off. It's, it's a pretty impressive thing that, you know, I, I don't know if, you know, every watchmaker could pull this off and I don't know if every watchmaker would even care to pull this off. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of give them props there, but w- one of the big differences between part one and part two here is, is part one really took place in one location. Production took place in one location. Part two, you had this whole, this whole drama in Geneva of restoring the watch, but then it had to, it had to go back home. Like you, you have this whole second, uh, production location, this whole second set of logistics, this whole second story to tell in Hood River, Oregon with with Barry and Laurie getting the watch back fully restored. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit about how that got set up and came together and what it was like to go out there? Kind of like this, this is the kind of climax of this emotional journey that you guys have been on for what, like the, the better part of a year and a half at this point? Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, as I said previously, you know, Gray and Dave and I talked about what we could accomplish on this trip at length, and then we did it again, and then we did it again, and then we did it again. Um, so, you know, we had a plan, but as I said also previously, you have to kind of think on the fly and, and, and you know, kind of make it work. But we knew what we wanted to accomplish going out there. We knew that we wanted to get footage of them responding to the first video to bring viewers back to that uh, in, in, in part two. Uh, we knew we wanted footage of them watching the restoration, which they had not seen before. So that, you know, to get their response to that. We knew that we wanted to follow Kristoff from the airport to Hood River to kind of capture that journey and have these two, you know, timelines kind of converge as the watch, as the watch came back. We wanted to capture the reunion. We wanted to get a quick interview with Barry to kind of frame uh, everything uh, out here. And then we wanted to get a kind of more romanticized shot of these three characters Mm -hmm. in in the environment. Um, And that's that shot that you see at the end, um, you know, by the river, um, which is kind of a Corhonan special. Uh, I would say, you know, I, I, I would say, um, so we went into it with a plan and, you know, we made it work. We, you know, Davey got up and went to the airport, um, to, you know, follow Kristoff as he, you know, as he came in, Gray and I kind of set up at the Hood River Hotel in beautiful downtown Hood River, um, and, and, and made it work. Um, Gray, do you want to talk about what that setup was like and, and, and how that played out? Sure. We're giving out a lot of free pub, man. The best Western of uh, St. Louis and Hood River uh, Hotel. <laughs> I, I would hope that we're seeing some some checks. I haven't seen any yet. Well, that's... Uh, I have. <laughs> um, yeah, as, as far as the setup, I mean, much like part one, you know, it, it you, you have 
one bite at the apple, really. You have one opportunity to capture this moment of the watch now being returned in its fully restored fashion. The game there is to make it somewhat visually compelling looking, but also make sure, like I said, you have the coverage to capture that one moment. You can't recreate the moment where Barry sees his watch for the first time. Like, you know, that that was not staged in any way other than we, we put these characters in the same space. That is the first time he sees the watch. That reaction is genuine. You know, going back to what James said, these folks have nothing to prove. They are, they are not there for, for performance. They are there to, uh, as they would probably put it, get a job done. Um, but uh, what, what you see unfold in part two is very much, you know, what we were seeing firsthand in, in Hood River. And, and James and, and Stevie, and hopefully for all the listen, listeners out there, what you're really hearing right now is kind of like how our pre-production meetings go <laughs> like a few hours before we're about to shoot like the night before it's usually gray myself and and will in the hotel room after probably you know eating chinese food or, or some type of burrito <laughs> kind of go through these bullet points and that's how we go into it is, is with these intentions but it's really up to the the universe at that point for for Barry and Laurie to show up. And I think on this shoot in particular, it helped a lot that we had a rapport with them. We were all witnessing it um, as it unfolded, you know? Yeah, that's a good point, Davey. And it's also, you know, we all come at it with slightly different ideas and perspectives. And, and I think the magic kind of happens at the intersection of those. Mm-hmm. You know, we kind of throw it all in a pot and, and mix it up and, and, and see what kind of see what kind of uh, entree we, we uh, you know, we, we come out with. Um, a, apparently a burrito of some kind. Um, <laughs> I got to say the first time I saw a cut of part two, which was just a few days before uh, before we released it, I was completely blown away. And, and it's, it's a rare thing that I get to experience anything we produce like our audience does usually you know i've seen cuts along the way often like i'm even when other people are shooting week on the wrists and things like that like talking watches i'm in the room like i'm, I'm not watching footage i'm watching it happen this was something that I, I got to experience truly as an audience member and it was so impactful and so exciting to get to see this come together uh and and some of the creative decisions like the the decision to watch them watching the footage uh really just to me like took this to a whole other level like it it that layering of the story and you know recentering the story of the restoration on these people uh to me just totally totally changed changed the feel of this yeah i mean uh bringing it into the editing process like just within them watching the footage you you what we're really going for is, is their reactions to it. And that's kind of, that's something that I, I kind of like look out for when, when I'm, you know, going through and combing over all this footage. So like that to me was, was cool too. And I think um, that was a collective uh, creative decision. I, I think Ray may have uh, brought up that idea and it's just unique ways to tell this story. And, and it, it shows up in the in the final product, you know. I mean, obviously, the the sort of emotional climax of this whole thing is is when Barry gets the watch back, and you know his his emotional reaction to that is is kind of like the centerpiece of this whole thing. 
but I I wonder what your emotional reactions were in that that moment. Again, we've we've talked about the fact that like you've all been involved in this story for for well over a year. You know these people now. Like, what what did it feel like for you guys to watch that that box open and kind of like see the look on his face? Well, obviously it was a, it was a big moment, you know, for all of us. Um, as you sort of see, or as you've sort of learned about, you know, Barry, he's pretty reserved in his responses yeah. to, you know, to, to these things. Um, I, you know, he's one of those people who's kind of seen it all. So nothing is uh, that shocking or, or that crazy to, to, to him. Um, so clearly it was a, it was a great moment, but for me, it was less about that singular moment than it was about the entirety of, what was going on there. And one thing that, that really touched me there was, was the fact that Lori was there number one, to be a part of this thing again. Um, But it it was, you know, as he said in the video, he said something along the lines of that this project had opened him up to speaking about his experiences again. It's opened me up to speak about my, my months in Vietnam. And I belong to a few veterans groups that I've been able to share. And it's easier to share with veterans that have experienced some part of this. And uh, they're always amazed by the story and the, the coincidences that all came about in it. This video that we created had enabled him to share this difficult experience with people. And, and he was able to open up about it. And, and I think, you know, it, it was you know, there was some therapy going on there to, 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 you know, to put it bluntly. And it felt really good to know that and to see that in action and to see him again in person to be a part of this. So the watch is returned to, to, to Barry, but he is just as much a part of the story as, you know, as Barry is. So I always caught myself out of the corner of my eye, you know, kind of looking at Lori and seeing, seeing his yeah. response. Um, because to me, that was a really special part of this whole project. All right, so so Will, that's your sort of favorite moment of this. I'm I'm curious then for the mm. other three of you guys, what what was kind of the highlight for you personally? And it doesn't have to be what you think is the biggest moment. It can just be the moment that that sorry you took the most away from uh, through through this process. Maybe we'll start with Gray. My moment is similar to Will's in that uh, it is about the relationship between Barry and Lori and the interplay that they have. And it's, it's probably one of the most impactful lines from parts one and two, but it's Barry recounting his first conversations with Lori after they've been reunited and how one of the first things they talk about is the watch. Got this call. Does the name Lori McLaughlin mean anything? And uh, I said, of course. I said, the watch. And in in the piece itself, uh, Barry's tearing up a little bit with, you know, the recollection of that conversation, the recollection of, you know, ghosts of 50 years ago. Dave, expertly, cuts to the two shot of the two of them, right as Barry taps Lori on the thigh and Lori kind of like knowingly nods his head and, and, and tears well up in his eyes as well um, as, you know, kind of a crystallization of everything that this, this is about, right? It's about the two, these two men and, and the object that binds them 
you know, what, what better moment to kind of, uh, summarize that, that, that vibe. James, how about for you? Yeah. Mine's the same moment. Uh, I, I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was the, you know, I, I wasn't able to be there due to shooting schedules and everything else for, uh, Barry getting the watch back in part two, but, uh, I sat, you know, a couple of feet away from them att- attempting to get them to tell this story in, in the moment that Gray just described. I can't do a better job than Gray. So, uh, it was, uh, it was a thing just to, just to get a chance to hear the story in, in that sort of a linear fashion, in a fashion where they understood, uh, you know, that, it, that, that what they were talking about was the bond between the two of them. Yeah. And just like, that's a great point guys. Like that moment and the mutual support and admiration and yeah. respect yeah. that all kind of what was demonstrated in that, you know, very subtle move that, that, that we cut to, uh, that was just a great, great moment for sure. For me, at least it was, and, and the biggest challenge, um, throughout this process um, for part two was was kind of this this convergence of all these timelines, which made this edit like ten times as hard as the first one. Um, because what I mentioned before, like with part one, it was it was Barry's uh, voiceover and his storytelling that was the spine of the story. But um, we all kind of agreed with part two that it would be interesting if the restoration was kind of the spine of this story. So we have three timelines happening at the same time. You have uh, Barry um, telling his story and, and Laurie um, watching it with him and the first one. And then you have um, the restoration of the watch itself. And then you have this um, impending arrival of, of, uh, of Christoph arriving. So that's what kind of happens with this is that they all, this moment all converges. And then um, I had that moment as, as, Christoph is walking to, to meet them. He says, um, as I mentioned before, um, you have the story that's behind the watch, beyond the watch. It's not just an object. It's a whole world of history, stories, and human relationship around it. And um, that's, that's kind of what I wanted to leave the audience right before they all meet for the first time after, you know, half a year or so or whatever it was and kind of built it up to that crescendo. So that for me was a special moment to execute and it wasn't easy, but um, uh, I'm glad uh, we nailed it. If we, if we could just talk a little bit about Davey's editing process here and how many years were taken off of his life um, throughout this process, you know, really just, deserves so much praise um you know for for the work that he did here and how well, thanks, this, guys and how this came how this came together and it really kind of a special thing um you know i was getting uh, messages at three in the morning hey what do you think of this i'm doing this uh, what do you think of this track you know all this kind of stuff so he didn't sleep much no. uh he's a dad with two young kids he was moving houses uh, he really put in a, a yeoman, yeoman's effort here. So yeah, much appreciated. I'm, I'm literally um, texting them as we're recording. I'm like, um, if you're going to come inside, uh, please be quiet and go straight to the kitchen and eat dinner because we're recording this <laughs> podcast. So that's, yeah, good luck with that. That's what the process yeah. was really like. It was working on it from uh, eight or nine at night to three or four in the morning. And then, showing up for the editorial meetings like half awake and then kind of just like doing the homeschooling and quarantining um, in the middle of the day and then having my own mental sanctuary at night. It's incredible, Davey. It really, I mean, 
Will Will said said it before, but this is this is one one hell of a project. Like really, really one one amazing thing. Uh, all right, I'll I'll finish up with my favorite favorite scene, and then I've got one more question to ask you guys before I let you all go. But uh, I think my favorite moment is is and it was referred to earlier, but is this this final shot, this final meeting uh, in mm-hmm. part two. And there's this amazing scene, you know, I give, I'm, I'm going to take a wild guess here and say this was Gray's shot, if I've, if I've correctly figured out his style here. But there's this close-up of a bunch of hands, and at first you can't quite tell whose hands are whose. And there's this moment where Lori hands the watch back to Barry, and Barry puts it back on his wrist on the original blood-stained strap. And it's like, even just talking about it now... I'm I'm like tearing up. It's it's such a powerful reversal of the moment that set this whole story in motion fifty oh, I guess fifty one years ago now. Um right. and it's it's just it's it's almost like you get this moment at the end and you know Davies hit the rewind button and somehow it's gone beyond our footage and we've gotten to watch this this passing of the watch in reverse today in color. And and to see these two men interacting and Kristoff is there as well. And to have him put this watch back on his wrist with Laurie there next to him is is unbelievable. And like I, I just it's it's a shot that all the planning in the world could could set this up, but for it to play out like this and to have these guys feel comfortable doing this and, and this be a natural part of the story is is something that like we can't take for granted like i uh, you know i think for people who don't do this kind of thing for a living like sure you could storyboard this out a month ahead of time but like that that's not going to get you the shot you know it it, the magic has to be there and I, i think there's something really special about this not just us capturing it but this having happened um and and it sort of makes it all feel right to me uh like like all of this was meant to play out this way and it it all sort of ends in harmony in a, in a certain way. Um, and I, I have watched these videos, both, both parts many, many times. And this is one that just every time it happens, I'm just, I'm, I'm blown away every single time. Yeah. That's well put Stephen. Um, that's a, a nice moment. Um, I, I remember there, you know, uh, in, in the scene when, when, uh, you know, Gray wanted to get this sort of video portrait, which you see at the end of the, uh, at the end of the video as the, as the sort of closing shot. And I remember the guy saying, all right, well, can you just take a picture of us? You know, like we just want like a, a photo to remember this spot. You got your fancy Ronin out here getting your shot. Just take a picture, please. Oh, man. All right. So um, let's let's wrap this up. Uh, I I want to ask the last thing is, is what impact these kinds of stories can have on our our community and sort of the broader, you know, broader community i guess you know the the world at large but really we've touched on it we we spend a lot of our time focused on on stuff right like we're we're telling stories about products we're telling stories about objects that may or may not have had some amount of cultural significance but like this this is a this kind of ticks all the boxes it's it's about people it's about history it's about culture it's about consumerism it's about products it's about stuff it's about restoration it's about all these things and and what do you think we can kind of contribute to the community by telling stories like this what's the the long-term impact i guess of something like this um 
Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in here. Um, you know, as you said, we tell stories of watches as, as objects, you know, you know, for the most part. And, and going back to the beginning of this conversation, this was special and unique because this is a human interest story about, you know, two people separated for a long period of time and, and, and being reunited. Um, and in that sense, this type of story, um, I think resonated with many people beyond and continues to resonate with people beyond the watch community. Um, so I think it expands our reach uh, to, to, to people beyond hardcore collectors and, and vintage enthusiasts and, and, and whatnot, and enables us to, to tell future stories to a wider audience because they you know, are aware of, of who we are and what we do and, and the quality of, with which we do it. Um, so everything we do, I always look at as a building block for, you know, for the next thing. The only problem here is that this is going to be a difficult one to, you know, to, to top. Um, these stories just do not come along. Um, so that's on us. That's our responsibility. And we're going to do everything that we can to, uh, to create good stories like this. So if, you know, listeners out there have any tips for us, um, as always, you know, send them to Stephen. <laughs> um. <laughs> have you seen my inbox will uh that is that is maybe uh, a dicey dicey proposal luckily not luckily not all right i'm gonna i'm gonna say my last piece and then we'll let people go uh i, I want to echo what will just said which is i'm i had i i will say this as somebody who had basically nothing to do with making this project but with that giant caveat um I am immensely proud to work for a place that that produced something like this. I'm immensely proud to be part of a community that welcomed a story like this and really took it to heart. And and most of all, honestly, I'm super proud to work with the four of you guys and and everyone else who who put this together. This is really one hell of a piece of of journalism and of storytelling and you know, I know how hard the four of you guys work on on everything we put out the door, but the the level of, of care and empathy and attention to detail and fastidiousness and like everything that you guys put into this just shows like a, a tremendous care. I mean, care is, is the word that I keep coming back to here and, and the, the ability to take something that meant so much to these, these two human beings and to treat it that way and to treat it with that level of, of respect and attention, um, I think is a really special thing. And I, I think it's, you know, it, it not to make make too much of it, but it, it really brings me back to like why I got into doing this in the first place, like why I wanted to be a journalist um, is is that I love people and I love hearing people's stories. And I love the idea that like my job and all of our jobs is to amplify those stories and to tell them and to bring an audience to them. Um, and, and I think this really encapsulates all of that. So my my main the, the main emotion I come away from from this with is is pride, pride in these two amazing guys, pride in in the four of you and everyone else who put this together. And uh, yeah, I like James. I'm I'm eagerly waiting for the next one, uh, the the next time that we get to tell a story like this, you know, and and not one being better than the other or equal to another, but just an, another chance to do something big and ambitious and empathetic like this. Um, yeah, I think it's it's a pretty special thing. Um, 
thank you guys for taking the time to do this. Uh, and, and, you know, I know you have all already spent a lot of time with this project. So putting another hour and a half in now is, is really appreciated. Thank you, Stephen. That's, that's very well put. And thanks to, to the team for, for all your efforts. All right. Awesome guys. Thanks so much. Thanks, Stevie. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you guys. Bye-bye. Talk soon. Have a good one. Bye.